From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's turn to Omar Aguilar, CEO and CIO of Schwab Asset Management. Omar, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure your phone is ringing off the hook with your Schwab clients saying, what do I do in this market here? What are you telling Schwab clients? Yeah, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, we're, we're telling clients to just uh, take a deep breath and you know, stay off the screens a little bit. Um, this is, uh, we have... We have a market that went away from fundamentals to focus on macro, and right at this moment, it's really all about sentiment. Um, you know, we clearly see significant amount of client anxiety, um, which is very understandable um, about, you know, what's going on in the market, what's going on in the economy. Um, you know, as you just laid out, what they see on their house and their gas prices, anytime they go to the pump, anytime they, they go out to a restaurant, you know, they clearly see that uh, inflation numbers hitting them on their real pockets. And then at the, at the same time, they see everything that is going on overall. So, you know, this is, this is an area where uh, we encourage clients to talk to their advisors to look at their strategy. And, you know, there's a lot of strategies you can use to try to minimize any, any anxieties that you may have to do things that may not help you. So um, I heard Paul Tudor Jones the other day. I'm not sure if Critty will know who Paul Tudor Jones is. But to those of us who've been on the street for a few decades, he is an absolute legend, right? He was saying capital preservation is his number one concern right now, which kind of freaked me out a little bit. I wonder, are your investors reallocating right now or rebalancing um, in favor of capital preservation rather than looking for any more gains? Well, we're, we're, we're at that, you know, if, if you take a step back and, um, you know, for any of the business and economic cycles that we have seen historically, we have clearly accelerated going through the last part of the cycle. A lot of that as a result of, you know, the, the war in, in Ukraine and also just the fact that the Federal Reserve has, you know, probably been slow in reacting to what the inflation numbers were going even into last year. So when you put that into perspective, um, you know, this is the part where you need to become defensive. This is the part where you need to start figuring out how you increase your duration in your bond portfolio. This is the part where you need to be very um, selective in the kind of issues that you have with cash flows, high quality areas that will allow you to protect your balance sheet. Now, the fact of capital preservation, it is really a risk profile, and the risk profile doesn't necessarily meet the investment objectives of every investor. So what we encourage people to see is that, well, if your objective still is to grow, depending on when your situation is, you just need to figure out what is the right rebalancing strategy to maintain that risk profile that makes you feel comfortable. For some 
people, you know, people that are close to retirement, people that are in retirement where capital preservation is their main objective, clearly this is an opportunity to de-risk. But it's not necessarily for every investor. So, Omar, one of the, um, the pieces of chatter I've picked up on the last maybe day or two is just kind of where's the bottom in this thing, in this selling phase here? Do you even try to catch the bottom? Do you think about identifying the bottom? And, and if you do, what are some of the metrics you look at? Yes. Well, we encourage clients to, you know, try to speculate. You know, the chances that you're going to find the bottom and actually be there are very, very low. We always, um, you know, have these particular... Do you encourage clients not to try to speculate that's correct yes. not to try to speculate we you know market timing is very very difficult um and we have this phrase that we tell clients you know time in the market is better than timing the market and what that means is that it's staying invested and stay consistent with the invest the risk profile and the long-term objectives is more important than trying to find you know the dips and the bottoms of the market and trying to figure out where it is now that being said Markets like these provide opportunities for, you know, tax loss harvesting. This is an opportunity to reallocate within the risk tolerance right. of every client. And this is an opportunity just to find other opportunities that they may have not had in the past. All right. You know, you know why Omar sounds so smart, Matt? He's got he went to Duke. PhD from Duke. There I, you go. I knew it. I, by, the way, by the way, Omar, how much Swab Asset Management, just we got 10 seconds here. What are you, what are you managing? What are the assets? We're uh, uh, close to seven, $690 billion. All right. You got a couple shekels in the marketplace. That's a serious chunk on. of change. That yeah. is. Omar Aguilar, CEO and CIO, Schwab Asset Management, PhD from Duke, I will add. Uh, giving us his thoughts on these markets here. Again, a little bit of a bounce back. We are definitely off our highs, but some green on the screen today. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to get to our next guest right away. Uh, Matt Fassler, Chief Strategy Officer for XPO Logistics. It's a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. XPO is the ticker there. It's got about a $6 billion market cap. Matt, one of the key issues that Matt Miller and I have been focusing on keenly since the beginning of this pandemic from an economic perspective has been the supply chain, the global supply chain challenges. And there is no company that I can think of that has a more broader view of the global supply chain and XPO Logistics. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your expert opinion on how we got here, i.e. supply chain problems that are impacting everybody, and how we get out of this thing. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here, and especially happy to be here on a day uh, after we reported strong results uh, and a strong outlook. Uh, on your question as to how we got here from a supply chain perspective, uh, think of it this way. Uh, first of all, uh, in very early 2020, we saw some initial disruption as the first round of COVID hit China, and you had a slowdown in uh, import in export activity uh, from China. Uh, we thought at the time that that was going to be the crux of the impact. Uh, little did we know, obviously, in so many ways. Subsequent to that, uh, there was, uh, as you know, virtually a halt in the global economy. 
for, uh, at a moment in time, uh, after which you had a resumption of demand uh, and, and you had a lot of goods making their way into the United States and around the United States with finite capacity. And, and even in a normal demand environment, it's sort of the pig in the python situation. You try to get an enormous amount of goods through a fixed amount of infrastructure. Now, that infrastructure was even more constrained than it otherwise would have been because during the pandemic, uh, lots of providers of supply chain services pulled back on their orders of new equipment. Beyond that, uh, obviously, you had fiscal stimulus and there was a lot of money in people's hands. Moreover, they were spending a lot of that money on goods rather than services. So you had more goods than usual, making their way through less infrastructure than usual all at once. And then finally, uh, as you know, whether you call it the Great Resignation or simply a a labor shortage, uh, there were fewer people to help perform those tasks. So there was less infrastructure, uh, there was less labor to get the job done, uh, there was more demand. Uh, there was obviously, in, in that sense, a perfect storm. Now, our role uh, has been and remains helping people, our customers, and ultimately their customers, uh, navigate through that. And that's something that we've been able, uh, thankfully, to do. And obviously, your services have been in uh, huge demand. You just, as you said, pu- published results that beat. Uh, estimates and you raised your outlook as well for the full year. Given that um, you have a really good view of um, the U.S. economy, the global economy, how do you see um, how do you see it developing right now? I mean, obviously for XPO, the picture looks great because the industry that you're in, the area that you're in, is in is in huge demand. What about for the broader economy? Do you see a slowdown this year? There are crosswinds, for sure. There are a number of macro factors to consider and for everyone to keep their eye on. Uh, The Fed has obviously been, uh, has started the the process of raising rates. That's been in in part in response to an inflationary environment. That's something uh, we need to watch. Uh, There obviously is a a war uh, in Ukraine, and that's something that we need to watch. Our our European business has uh, actually performed quite well. We're, We're primarily in the western part of Europe, uh, UK, France, and Spain, organic revenue growth in that part of the world accelerated for us uh, in the first quarter uh, versus the fourth quarter. And then in China, obviously, there have been uh, COVID-related lockdowns that has led to uh, some suspension or slowdown in the amount of freight making its way to our shores uh, from China. Uh, Obviously, something we're watching very carefully, though our view is that once those lockdowns ease, you'll see uh, a flood of freight and certainly nothing like what you saw in 2020 that we spoke about a moment ago, but potentially some retightening uh, of the truckload markets and other transportation markets. So definitely some crosswinds and, and things to watch. But if, if our business is a gauge of what we're seeing in truck brokerage, where we, where we help arrange truckload transportation uh, for, for many, many of the largest shippers in the country and the world, uh, in, the fir- in the first quarter, our load growth was 23%. That's our volume growth. That's the sixth consecutive quarter uh, of 20% growth or more. And in April, uh, our volume growth was quite strong. Our growth in revenue per well, day and our less than truckload business uh, in April, uh, a bit stronger than we saw. In and, and you really focused the business, right? I mean, you were for years, for a couple of decades at least, at Goldman Sachs, um, and you came in to run XPO. Just give us the shorthand version of what you've done to 
to focus um, this logistics business? Well, well, well. Uh, my 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 uh, my boss, Brad Jacobs, is our chairman, CEO, and founder. So he runs XBO. I'm the chief strategy officer. So, so uh, I, I want to put myself in my place, if you will. Hmm. But what we've what we've done what we've done collectively. I appreciate the promotion. Um, what we've done uh, collectively uh, uh, of late. Uh, to your point, we have refocused the business. Uh, we uh, used to operate within XPO uh, a supply chain or contract logistics business uh, offering uh, warehousing and distribution services, also for many of the largest companies in the world. We spun that company off uh, as GXO last August. They've had a very good run. They reported their numbers uh, last week. That was a very successful spin. And, and we are further focusing our business. We recently uh, divested our intermodal operation. We sold that in March. Uh, We've indicated that we plan to divest our European transportation operation, the business I spoke about a moment ago. And and then uh, also in the fourth quarter, uh, we plan on divesting our tech-enabled brokerage services platform into a separate public company, which will leave the Remainco, if you will, XPO as an LTL enterprise, and then the brokerage business uh, as a separate public company. And what, what we what we found through GXO and what we expect to find when we complete this spin is that these companies uh, each will be better fit for their purposes of serving their customers and able to engage in many decisions that are precisely specified to, to their right. uh, business missions. And we think they'll be quite successful. Matt, we've got about 30 seconds left. I'd love to get your best guess as to when these supply chain issues will become more normalized. Uh, we think that it's going to stay tight for a while. Uh, We think that disruption will persist for a while. We think that uh, things actually might tighten up a bit more, again, as I said, in the second half, if it has great flow resumes from China. Uh, We we are there to help our customers. We we were there last Christmas to help people get their gifts under their trees. We're there to help our industrial customers uh, Mm. get their equipment out there. And and, and, uh, I think next year you, you could see some normalization, but I think the value of outsourced transportation advice and services yep. uh, has been proven and shown, and that should endure. All right, good stuff. Matt Fassler, Chief Strategy Officer for XPO Logistics, Logistics, giving us the latest on these supply chain issues still out there. If I were to choose a diesel, a big diesel engine, mm-hmm. I would definitely go with the Power Stroke. Ford has a 6.7 liter Power Stroke. It's only available in the Super Duty trucks. I wish they sold it in the uh, half tons. But it puts out more than a thousand pound feet of torque. Pound feet. You got that? Unbelievable torque figures. Now, I know Greg Jarrett, uh, because he was stuck in some oil field fires during the first Persian. during the first Gulf War, um, is allergic to diesel. He's going to be very happy when they start putting out electric pickup trucks. For a long time, we thought Tesla was going to make a cyber truck. I'm not sure if that's really still happening. I've started to see some Rivians um, on the street. Uh, they're, you know, $100,000 vehicles, and they're not really what you think of as a, as a work truck, you know, right. although TFL did um, use one on a, on, on a farm for a little bit. Um, I think most people are waiting for Ford to put out the F-150 Lightning. Obviously, the F-150 or the F-Series pickup truck is like the best-selling nameplate of all, not just trucks, but cars in the U.S. and has been for at least 40 years, I'm going to (laughs) say. 
That's not a joke. No. Um, uh, Americans buy, buy their F-Series trucks and absolutely love them. J Jason Turnbull joins us right now. He is the marketing manager for the Lightning, and he's been working at Ford for uh, uh, the the better half, of, the better end of a decade, I should say, a little more. I think what thirteen years, Jason. Great to About. have you on the program. Tell us when we're going to actually see this truck. I'm so worried that it's going to be like um, you know not until 2024 because the chip shortage and the supply chain issues are are making us wait for all these automotive pro 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 products. Well, thank you, for, thank you for, for having me. Yeah, so the FZ Lightning, it's our all electric all-electric basic pickup truck. And the greatest thing is we announced it two years ago. We revealed it a year ago. And starting this month, we're actually starting customer deliveries. So it's a real product wow. that starts under, under $40,000, and we're really excited about it. This All right, so I knew, like, Mike Levine is a buddy of mine over at yeah. Ford, and he gets to test the coolest, all the new products, you know? And I see pictures of him taking the Lightning out to, like, Moab or on the Baja or whatever, but I didn't know that real people were going to start. So people are going to start taking deliveries. What's the wait list, though? If I put my order in today for a Lightning, when am I going to be likely to go pick it up from my, from my Ford dealer? Yeah, so when we revealed last May, we took reservations. And last December, we hit 200,000 reservations. We actually had to shut off our reservation system because now our goal is to fulfill and convert those all, 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 all the orders. So if you don't have, have, a, have a reservation right now, you're really going to wait probably about 18 months um, before that you can place an order for an FA Lightning because our we're laser-focused on getting them out the door to the current customers that have ordered jason i think you just answered my question because you know it's one thing to drive around a tesla around cupertino california it's another thing to go on my big ranch out in the middle of arizona where i have to do some real work with a pickup truck and convert that to electric are, are ford f-150 buyers are are they ready to go electric so this is a key benefit of the FMA Lightning is we are attracting a broad range of customers. So from that tra traditional truck customer, it is going to tow and haul just like your current gas or diesel. It tows up to 10,000 pounds, hauls over 2,000 pounds. It will have 320 miles of EV range. So it will do the bill as well as it passes all durability, capability. It is built for tough. And at the same time as we are attracting new to EV and new to Ford customers that really want that technology to do. So we have that hands-free blue cruise highway driving. We have onboard scales that actually measures what's in your pickup bed. So this product can do all the work stuff. And then also is loaded with advanced technology. For me, the coolest thing is you can power your house. So here in the Northeast, we have a lot of storms that knock out power. Yep. If you have this thing parked in your garage and it's charged you can use it as as use it as a generator. Um, I still have range anxiety, though, Jason. And I'm wondering, was there ever any thought, even you know, as a, a as a dealer add-on, to offer like a diesel generator to put in the bed so that I don't have to worry about getting to a charging station? Yeah. So when we we're developing the product, it was all about efficiency. So the way that we package the the battery and kind of how it's within the frame rails and how it's a parallel system, it is the most efficient. Um, and what we found is for our customers, over 90% of them 
charge at home. So for the most part, you know, they can they drive less than that 320 miles range a day. When you go on a road trip, that's where EV infrastructure is critical. And we really believe that as we grow the footprint, it will meet our customers' needs. So how quickly can you grow the footprint? I mean, um, you know, I live in the great state of Ohio. I'm from there, thank God. And uh, <laughs> But I live way out here in New York. And so I try and get back as much as possible. That's like a 600-mile trip. I would have to I probably realistically charge up twice on the way back. And I'm driving through, like, f- legit flyover country. Mm-hmm. Like, I go – when you – when Penn I State. go through Pennsylvania, yeah, exactly. Happy Valley is like the only sign of life for six <laughs> hours. How am I going to charge this thing on the way home to Granville? Yeah, the key thing at Ford is we realize, you know, we're not the experts in basic EV basic charging. So what we're doing is we are partnering with all the major um, charging stations. So Electri America, EVGo, uh, Green Lots. So to our customer is in our Ford Pass app, it's going to look like Ford, Ford, charge, Ford charging stations. And you can, before you leave the driveway, you can plug in your address, your destination, and it'll automatically tell you what's the most efficient route and where to charge. So our goal is to be, which we are right now, the largest EV network because we partner with all the charging stations, you know, instead of going alone. So, Jason, as you, you know, ramp up your manufacturing, give us a sense of supply chain challenges that you guys are feeling here. Can you get all the chips you need for these EVs and, and plus the old ICE? Yeah, so what I can say is, you know, a, a macro kind of impact in the industry is, is, is the chip shortage. At Ford, you know, we are managing that as best we can, and Lightning is a key product launch, so we are prioritizing. So, we're laser focused on having a on time, on track, and a quality oh, launch man. for Lightning specifically. Dude, that's too laser focused. Two <laughs> times you've said you're laser focused. This is an old phrase that Alan Mulally brought to the Ford Motor Company back in the day. I like it. I like it. I'm sure you get points for it. Farley will Farley will allow it. By the way, uh, Jim is a good friend of mine, and I'm sure he won't right. mind you sharing just with us, just with me and Paul some of your secret plans. I've been driving the Bronco around for the last week, and it is a ton of fun. I got to say, I'm super impressed by the 2.7 liter V6 in there, and I hate V6s traditionally. Hate them. Who doesn't? I think it's the most boring. If you're going to choose an engine, obviously a V8, right? But at least an inline six. They went with the V on this, and I thought, oh, no. But it's so fast, and it's so responsive. So I'm blown away. My question, though, is, Jason, when do you go electric? I don't know why you didn't introduce the Bronco as an electric vehicle in the first place. How long do we have to wait for, at the very least, a hybrid Bronco? Yeah, so I, I can't count on that. But what I can tell you is Ford's strategy is we're not just saying we're going electric everything. Because we know, especially in, in the over 8,500 segment, there's different usage cases. So if someone's going to tow heavyweight, long distance and frequently, a diesel or, or, or gas engine will work. Obviously, Bronco is a blast to drive currently, and we're always looking at kind of future plans to electrify. So stay tuned in the future. All right, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Jason Turnbull, <laughs> their marketing manager. 
clearly, doing an excellent job talking about the F-150 Lightning. We're pumped to see uh, that come out. I'm also pumped to see an electric Bronco. It's got to happen. I heard the Broncos is awesome. Dude, it's so much fun. I've been driving it back and forth to Westchester. I dropped the top yesterday. The sun was out. I'm like blasting bad religion, flying (laughs) up uh, the uh, West Side Highway. Super, super fun. All right, good stuff. Jason Turnbull, F-150 Lightning Marketing Manager for the Ford Motor Company. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to bring in John Authors. He covers all this great economy market stuff for Bloomberg uh, news and Bloomberg opinion. John, you know, we're looking at the markets here. We had a Dude, real... did you see the top of his column? I did not. I love it. All right, let us I know. love it. Uh, party over, oops, out of time. Oh, I got yeah. it. Look at him being so hip there. Um, John, what do you make of this market hip, here? As in quoting a song from 40 years ago. But yes. Y- yes, okay, carry <laughs> yeah. yeah. 23 years ago. No, wait. The song was 1999, but it must have come out in the 80s because I remember was, I had the... It was, it was before. It was before Purple Rain. I think it was about 82 or 83. Yeah, it was on the Little Red Corvette album. Uh, Yes. What what a great record. God, I loved Prince back then. Yep, back in the day. Not that we're all more interested in Prince than what's going on in the financial markets. I want. What is going on in the financial markets from your perspective, John? (laughs) Yeah, the point is you're comparing this to 2000, so... That's yes. rough. And in some, in some, in some, well, in some critical respect, it is. I mean, bear in mind that what what's different, um, or what you, until recently, I would have said this didn't have that much in common with two thousand because that was very much an internally financially driven incident. Um, whereas this time around, we you know we we have a, a war, we have. In rising inflation, we have the, the shock from the pandemic. There were all kinds of uh, very obvious external reasons why uh, why the, the markets are being shocked and having to react. But what is interesting the last few days, in particular, is how this has been about driven about, and the stock market has been driven all about valuation. Uh, it's the most overpriced stocks that have sold off the most. Period. Right the way through the the markets, that that, that uh, relatively cheap stocks are barely down. Some of them are actually gaining a bit. If Walmart or Newell Brands or whatever are doing moderately well, uh, and the names that have excited people are tanking. Right, which is and very very similar to two thousand. And and maybe not, maybe not enough yet. Right, John. I heard um, Luke Kawa was on the Odd Lots podcast on right. Friday, and he said, you know, our old friend. <laughs> Valuations have come in, um, but, uh, you know, terminal rate expectations are up 100 basis points. So maybe it's not worth it yet. Uh, I would I would certainly say that there is no clarity over while there isn't clarity over the terminal rate, while there isn't clarity over how inflation comes under control, then there can't be clarity over uh, an appropriate valuation either. If you look, it's. You know, I don't want to get too technical, but if you look at the cyclically adjusted PE, which is uh, Robert Schiller's great invention uh, at Yale University, which 
has been very good at sh- predicting medium-term returns, like returns over the next 10 years, then it has come down sharply in the last few months, but it's still almost exactly at the level it was at before the 1929 Great Crash. So we've already been talking about prints 40 years ago, and we're about as expensive as we were almost 100 years ago before that crash. By, by the way, no particular reason for valuation for things to stop selling off now. And who knows what, what was on the charts then? Yes, I, I don't. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I wonder what yeah. you – how do you explain to a layman um, like me why mm. ri- rising rates are bad for these, you know, growthy tech stocks, for these disruptive innovators? Why is yeah. Why are rising rates necessarily bad for – uh, you know, a Netflix or maybe even an Amazon. What's the relationship there? Okay, if your growth is in the future, uh, if you're, if all your earnings are in the future, you're not churning out earnings regularly now, but all the hopes reasonably enough, but all the hopes are for growth in the future, then you need in any discounted cash flow analysis through to account for the time value of money and discount those future flows by a reasonable interest rate. You know, in layman's terms, money in the future isn't worth as much as money is today. That worth in the future declines as interest rates rise. So if all your value is in the future, uh, higher rates will clobber your valuation. Meanwhile, if you're Newell's brands making Rubbermaid and Sharpies and, and stuff, um, your valuation is centered in the here and now, and uh, rates don't matter anything like so much. John, if I'm a glass half empty person, is it fair mm-hmm. to say <laughs> these markets aren't going to rebound until interest rates stop going up? Don't fight the until Fed. Until we're confident, in terms of are they going to make a firm rebound and get above um, get above the levels they were at at the turn of the year? I I don't see how that can happen until we have clarity about where interest rates are headed. No, I, 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 that doesn't mean that – I doubt it, but it's possible the, the bottom is already in. But in terms of a really strong recovery to the levels that we've seen in the seen uh, as recently as the turn of the year, we need to know how bad inflation and the interest rates are going to get. Yeah, you need to uh, know and, what the Fed's going to do before you can price it in, right? Yeah, and, and, and the Fed itself doesn't know because the Fed itself doesn't know exactly how bad the inflation problem and how quickly it will come under control. So I, I, I don't see a way I, – I, I'm sure there are plenty of ways I'm not thinking of where people can make money over the next few months. Um, in terms of a sustained, clear buying opportunity taking us up to new levels, I don't see how that's possible in the next few months. Somebody well, clever out there is going to make money in the next few months. Yes. They always do. Um, but in terms of a secular uplift to the stock market of the kind we've been become accustomed to, uh, that that can't happen until we know what's happening with the uh, with inflation and rates. Well, you've got to be able to see who lives through this. If we have the kind of drops like we had in mm. uh, at the end of the internet bubble, I remember a buddy yeah. of mine was working at BT Alex Brown, and he said, "I don't care." Mm. Um, if you think all these, you know, revenue churning tech companies are worthless, I think Amazon mm. is still going to be a big behemoth someday. 
And I always think about that because I should have bought Amazon uh, when he was telling me. But we still, I mean, yes. the cruel math the part of this, John. known as BT Alex Brown. These yes. Days, yes. These days known to its friends as Deutsche Bank. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. The, the, the cruel on. math thing is we have to, yes. in order to get back to the turn of the year, we've got to climb so much further than we've fallen because the de- denominator is smaller now. Yes. Right? Um, the NASDAQ has lost like. 25%, but it's got to go up 40% to get back to where it was on January 3rd. Math. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and at some point that probably will happen, but it's unlikely to happen this year unless inflation comes really rapidly under control without hurting growth. So um, so to that end, John, I, I don't tomorrow... I really see how that can happen. So when we get the CPI data yeah. tomorrow, John, what, what, what do you think we should really be focusing on? Uh, You should be focusing on uh, rents, which is the big element that most worries people. uh, um, That's a third of the index, and for one reason or another, it tends to show up in in the CPI with a lag. uh, And it's been relatively under control and is now rising. So that is a critical issue. and beyond that, take a look at uh, the trimmed mean um, of inflation, where you remove outliers in both directions. By, by uh, the way, it's likely. Sorry. Well, yeah, well I was going to say we're we're about to have uh, to listen to President Biden come out and talking uh, talk about inflation. Yeah. I can see the background um, uh, behind his podium. It says lowering costs and tackling inflation, which I'm sure he wants voters to think that he's doing. Um, yeah. This there's, there's very little he can do. Yeah. Certainly, this side of the midterms, there's more or less nothing he can do. But it's a, it's a rule of politics, isn't it? You, 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 if you're the one in charge, when the economy goes sour, it's yours. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money the federal government was spending even before he came into office. But, yeah, exactly. uh, John, I, I want to just finally ask you what your take mm. is on um, the housing market and interest rates, because we saw mortgage rates climb to, I think, at the end of last week, it was already 5.3%. And mm. at least anecdotally, I have heard first-time buyers scared out of the market or people selling their homes say, God, well, I, we better lower the price now. Um, mm. is, is it is it problematic? Because, you know, we've seen this huge land grab and prices are unbelievable. There's no inventory. And now you've got mortgage rates rising. Yes, it's it's very problematic. And this is the big difference, bad difference from 2000 uh, in that 2000 was an equity market bubble, a massive one, but it wasn't a housing market bubble as well. This time we have something that looks as though it might even be a bubble in American housing. Now, there is one huge advantage that the U.S. has compared to almost the rest of the world, which is that Americans for years have preferred fixed-rate mortgages. I happen to be looking at a piece of research. So something like from Deutsche Bank uh, that shows that only about 2% of U.S. mortgages are on variable rates. Uh, in the UK, it's more like 40. In Australia, Italy, Germany, we're talking about more than 80% are variable. So the impact of rising mortgages takes longer to ha- affect house prices here than it does in the other developed economies. But plainly, at this point, it's uh, you know, this is uh, overextended and people have been making their calculations on the assumption that money would stay uh, 
you know, phenomenally historically cheap, and it isn't anymore. So, it's, yes, it's very concerning. All right, John Authors, thank you so much. We appreciate that. John Authors covers global markets and investments and the Red Sox Thanks, John. for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Opinion. What a the br- Red Sox? Brutal year for the Red he Sox. He sounds like a soccer fan. I know, but he's a big Red Sox fan. I did Go not know him. that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.